got a drink. I'm telling you, I wish I could come around and give everybody a little drink of what I got because just looking, some of you need it. I'm just kidding. You can be seated. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. I didn't mean to <coughs> cough in the mic a minute ago. I thought I had it off, but sorry about that. Wow, man, he is just awesome. Amen? Amen. He is just... Uh, Better than words can describe. That's who he is. And as we uh, set our gaze on him, it changes everything. I'm just going to read it. Psalms 121. I quoted verse 1, but Psalms 121 says this. I will lift my, have you, do you hear how it's written? I will lift my eyes. That means there was a decision made. I will lift my eyes. You ever been in a, deci- in a situation where you had to make a decision? <laughs> I will lift my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. You know, that's pretty awesome right there. When he says, because he's acknowledging who he's lifting his eyes to. The creator of it all. And then he, de- then he declares this, he, who, the Lord who made the heaven and earth will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. You know, so we shouldn't have a reason for sleepless nights. Because he's not sleeping. Amen. Amen. Yes, he does. <laughs> he who keeps your uh, will not Slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth, even forevermore. Man, that's the heart of the Lord toward us, toward those who set their eyes, who set their gaze on him. Not on circumstance, not on situation, but set their gaze on him. Uh, um, Over the past few weeks, I'm going to try to get into my notes a little bit. I've been sharing about Israel and their wanderings. Uh, how that they came out, God delivered them miraculously out of Egypt. And then his, pre- his plan was to take them into the promised land. We read in New- Numbers 13 where they sent the 12. And uh, they went in and 10 came with a negative report. Two said, but wait, hold up. Joshua and Caleb said, hold up, man, there's grapes in there. And they brought them a cluster of grapes. <clears throat> and the whole time the Lord was wanting them to change their perspective. He was wanting them to not just be freed 
from bondage, but to be free from bondage. That it would no longer be their identity. And, and see, there's so many people that the Lord brings freedom in an area in their lives, but it's still, it still shapes who they are because they, they still have their identity in what they did and not who they are. And he said, I, I want you to understand that I've brought you out. And you know what's so cool about that? <clears throat> if you think about it, God put giants in the land there before him for a purpose. To, to plow long rows and plant big food, build big houses. And then said, I brought them in before you. They're not here to stay. They just came to prepare a place for you. But that place I've given to you, <laughs> that's pretty good. I don't know about you, but I'd much rather have giants building my house than midgets. <laughs> I'm just saying, that can cause problems. You won't bump into a header that a giant built, but you'll bump into a header a midget built. <laughs> So God, see, again, what was it? It was all about perspective. All they could see, all God said is, I brought them in for a reason to build it big for you. <laughs> okay. That was just kind of feeler to see where we were so I know how fast I can take off. I don't want to cause anybody whiplash. <clears throat> Next, we talked about Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, where Jesus said, unless you become like a child, you'll uh, in no wise see the kingdom of God. He said, unless you become like a child and you won't see the kingdom of God, if you don't have that faith and that trust, that dependency, that expectancy of a child. You know, as I, I look at children, it <clears throat> intrigues me, it encourages me, it uh, challenges me. You know, my little sister growing up had school every day in the basement. She had a little six-by-six playroom, and she had school in that playroom every day, and there wasn't a day that passed that somebody didn't act up. (laughs) And there was always a baby doll outside the door. (laughs) And I I would say, what happened? They wouldn't listen. (laughs) And they were set outside the door. And they couldn't participate with the rest of the baby dolls in the room. And in her world, it was a valid punishment. But imagination that she would have, that she would go after it, and she didn't have to sit in front of a TV and play a video game all day long or anything like that. And I'm not against video games. I'm not, I'm not against any of that. I'm just saying what's happened is we started with our young people, and we started just squelching and killing imagination creativity you know i uh i made a joke the other day they were talking someone was talking we were actually brianna was trying on wedding dresses and the woman they were talking about the the movie hunger games and the book hunger games and uh the dialect was well did you read the books before you watched the movie and they said no and they said what's well, good then you'd enjoy the movie because if you read the book first you wouldn't enjoy the movie because there was a lot left out and I said, I made the statement. I said, why read a book when you watch the movie? <laughs> and she just kind of looked at me like you did. But the reality of it is, is the reason books are so much more vivid, you know why? Because they use your imagination. 
because you can see it. You don't believe it. My wife is a living testimony of that. Her imagination since she started reading has just gone through the roof. I mean, and that's a good thing. But sometimes I have to just rein it in on her. Because she'll just, we'll see something in real life and she'll say, you know, that's just like that what happened in my book. <laughs> Which is a fiction book. But, uh, anyway, our imagination causes us, you know, I keep going back. To the Tower of Babel. I shared this in our men's fellowship Saturday morning. I keep going back to that because the Lord said I had to confound their language because anything they imagined they could do. He didn't say they would try to do. He said anything they imagined they could do. And who was that? That was man, how God created them. I mean, realistically, let's look at Adam, the first man, right? God created Adam, and he said, all right, now, Adam, I got a job for you. Sit here, and everything I create is going to pass in front of you, and you're going to give it a name. You know he's got creativity. Look at hippopotamus. Look at platypus. I'm just saying, he had imagination, and that has, is so vital to us because what it does is it allows us to get outside of what everybody else says is normal and, and natural and say, all right, God, how do you see this? How can I see past what natural limitation says and see who you say that I am? Because I'm going to tell you, in the natural, <clears throat> if you just base it on circumstances, if you base it on past experience, if you base it on everyday experience, for me to stand here and say you're a son or a daughter of God, you'll never live into the potential that God wants you to have if you don't use your imagination to say, do you mean God really says that I am? I even hesitate to say it because some people will just be offended. That I am as righteous as Christ? If anything in you gets offended at that, that's an area of, the, of sufficiency in the flesh. It's an area where you're looking at who you are and what you've done that's made you right and not in Jesus and the finished work and what he accomplished on the cross. Because here's what you need to go. Jesus took on the nature of sin, not the actions of sin. He didn't commit the sins that you committed so that you could be free from those sins. He took on the sin nature and he died for that sin nature so that you could be born again. Second Corinthians says you've become a new creation. You get a new nature. You don't have two. You get a new, na new nature and you become a new creation in him. And the purpose of that is that we can live as sons and daughters, you know, John shared at the Men's Fellowship yesterday, and one of the things he talked about is that Romans, it, talks of, it says that creation itself is groaning. It's yearning for the manifestations of the sons of God. And that's us. As believers, that's us. What, what that's talking about is the manifestation of those who really know the Lord to stand up and be who they are. What does that mean? That means that even creation itself will take notice. 
did they to Jesus? Absolutely. He was in the boat, asleep. And the winds and the waves were crashing in the boat. And they awoke him. They were terrified. They awoke him and said, don't you care that we're perishing? And it says, Jesus stood and he rebuked the winds and the waves. And what did they say? What manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? What manner of man is this that nature itself shuts up when he says to it? And, and the word says that's who we are as a new covenant being. See, in your natural mind, you, you'll just war with that. You'll war with that. But if you take it by faith and walk, begin to walk it out, then you'll see the fruit of that. In your life, it's not a, a work that we have to do. It's the fruit of that life being lived through us. That's how Jesus lived in communion with the Father. He said, I only see, John 5, 19, I only, see what I, I only do what I see my Father doing. He lived from that place. Which leads me to the verse that I shared last week, Psalms 103. Verse 7 and 8 says this. <clears throat> he made, he made uh, known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. Verse 8 says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. <laughs> the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. And what I shared from that last week is that my heart for our body is this. Not that we would just know the acts of God, but that we would know the ways of God that we would know the heart of God, that we would have communion and fellowship with him. So we would not just know the miracles that he said will be seen in the believer's life. Mark chapter 16, these signs will follow them that believe. We've said those over and over and over. And, and many times what's happened in the charismatic churches, there's been a pursuit of gifts. And he said desire, covetly, covetously desire the gifts. So it's not wrong to desire them, but what's happened is we've gotten so caught up in the gifts that we've lost sight of the giver. And we operate. That's why you see people. I mean, history has proven it out that people will operate in gifts and not in love and not in character. Why? How does that happen? Because the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. They're without drawing back and taking back. There are gifts and there are callings that will operate because that's what the Bible said will happen. But it's not done with the heart of God. And that's where people get hurt. People get wounded. But he said, I don't want you to just know the, the hand of God. I want you to know the heart of God. That we would know the ways of God, not just the acts of God. But here's, I, I can promise you this. You can see, <laughs> I'll just stay here. Yeah. When we know the ways of God, you'll see the acts of God. As Moses knew the ways of God, he didn't say, hey, God, let me do a miracle. God, let me do a miracle. Come on, come on, come on. Do something with my stick, God. Can you do something with my stick? Anything, just do something. Come on, do something with my stick. He didn't do that. He just, he got to know God. And as he got to know him, God said, what's that in your hand? You mean my stick? He said, yeah, he said, throw it down. He would have had a hard time with that with Tina. I'm just saying. When she'd thrown it down, it turned into a snake. She'd said, all right, God, you do something with it because I'm not touching it. <laughs> Love you, baby. 
that we would know his ways. Listen to Psalms 34. I told you last week, I asked you last week to read this. I want to go through this because I want to get back to the children of Israel, where we left them last. (laughs) You know, the old TV shows. Anyway, (laughs) where we left them last, they were still wandering. There was the rebellion, and God said that all of the older ones are going to die. Moses, you're going to die because you misrepresented my heart, my ways. See, what does Psalm say? Moses knew his ways, but in his anger, he acted out, and he misrepresented the ways of God. And the Lord said, that's why you're not coming in. Psalms 34 says this, 1 through 9, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Again, how does that start? I will bless the Lord, right? It's a declaration, not a question. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me uh, from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor, the poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear, who revere him, and he delivers them. Verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. He starts out, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. I touched on this last week. Verse 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. That was why I just felt so impressed of the Lord to come up and let's just sing how great his love is for us. Because what we were doing is we were magnifying his name together. I just took this passage out and just invited you to do it with me. But listen to this, magnify. I shared this last week. The the Hebrew word for magnify literally means a twisting together like the twisting of a threefold cord. The word implies the increase of something until it's larger uh, than what is being compared to it. That's good. It says that we magnify him until it's larger than what is compared to it. So what could that be? I don't know. What is it? What is it right now? What circumstance? What situation? What trial? What place that you're in right now that seems bigger than him? You know what he says? Just begin to magnify him. Look, I'll, I'll just share this. This week, has, it's been, I couldn't tell you how long it's been really busy. Uh, I mean, appointments during the day and at night and just running a lot. Um, busy, busy. My wife gets on me some. She doesn't, she encourages me. But this week, I hit a wall. <laughs> I think it was, it started around Thursday. Is that right? You remember? Wednesday or Thursday. I just felt like when I woke up that I needed to go to sleep. You ever felt like that? 
just like I would get up and then everything was drained out of me to the fact that when I would get to the evening, I was achy and stuff like that. It was Thursday. And instead of, <clears throat> see, here's, here's what I want. Here's what I want. I want to know the ways of the Lord, not the acts. I want to know. And in the past year, the Lord has shown me and has walked me through different ways of seeing healing manifest in my body and and things like that. So immediately what we want to do is we want to go to the formula. We bind and curse and command and, you know, start spinning all our plates and everything like that because this is what good charismatic people do. When sickness comes, I'm redeemed by the blood. I'm the body, I'll take communion. And I'm all for communion. I believe there's power in communion. But we get into our formula mindset. And I said, Lord, here's what I want. I'm going to rest in you. You give your beloved rest. I said, I'm going to rest in you. I'm going to set my attention on you. I'm going to worship you. And uh, I said, that's where my heart is going to be. So I did, and I mean, I felt pressure, I felt pain and stuff, and I would just worship him. I would press in, I would worship him, and it would leave. And then I would settle down or slow down, and I would feel it again, and I would just go back into rest, and I would worship him. I didn't curse, command, or anything like that. I declared the truth of the word. I thank you, Father, that by the stripes of Jesus, I'm healed. You paid for sickness and disease, so I don't have to bear it. But I'm not going to spend the next 24 or 48 hours focusing on aches, pain, pressure. Are you with me? I said, I'm going to focus on you. I'm going to worship you. So Thursday, went to bed, slept. Friday, got up, got started, was feeling a lot better. Uh, Went to the hospital Friday morning to visit someone, came home, mowed the yard (laughs) in the hot, and came uh, came in and showered, and and it, it felt like I didn't just hit a wall, like a wall hit me. And fell. And uh, so I showered and, and still just felt like I needed to go to bed. But I had a busy day. And uh, <clears throat> that was, we were going to see Brianna try on wedding dresses. And I got a call. Someone else had been taken to the hospital. I said, well, I'm going to go see them. So that night we got home and I just said, you know what, Lord? You're bigger than this. You're big. I'm not going to put my attention on it. I just went to him. I just rested in him. I worshiped him. I said, God, I'm going to magnify you because you are greater than this. And I went to bed Friday night feeling like I got ran over. And I just went to bed. But my mind set on him. Lord, I boast in you. You're greater than this. And you're the only one who's going to get my attention. I woke up Saturday morning and it was gone. I went through the yesterday. I I didn't um, run around, as grandma would say, like a chicken with my head cut off. But I didn't lay around. I spent time with the Lord. I studied. Uh, I did a little bit of running. But it was gone. It lifted. It wasn't a battle. It wasn't a war because the war's over. Jesus paid the price. So what I'm telling you, what I made a decision to do instead of focusing on, because I, my pattern had been is I'll just go at this thing and command it to go. And, and every time it rises its head, I'll cast it down. And you know what I was doing? I was magnifying the thing. Is anybody tracking with me? And what I did is I said, I'm going to set my attention on you, Lord. And I set my attention on him, and it's gone. That's a good thing, in case you were wondering, in case I lost you anywhere in the journey. But in that, I said, Lord, I'm going to make a choice to magnify you. I'm going to, and as I did, 
every time I took time to magnify him, he got bigger, and it went away. (laughs) And that's who he is. That's knowing him. See, when we set our attention on him, it's not like a magic switch gets flipped. What happens is, as we set our gaze on him and see who he really is, the power of who he is is released in us and released through us. I was talking with Mark this week, and he said that was something that he's really been sensitive to in praying with people. It's not just when someone comes up, it's just throw something out and say, Lord, what do I need to say that's going to minister to them that will cause them to connect with you to release what you have for them? Instead of just throwing something out. And Psalm says, let's magnify, let's twist, grow. Uh, And and again, another definition of it means this, to twist, to grow, to become great. To praise, to do great things. That's Thayer's uh, Greek lexicon. To do great things. Stephen says that all the time. <laughs> and, I, and I've adopted that. And now it's really part of who I am. Because the word magnify means to do great things. You know why? Because if you look at yourself and what you're capable of doing, you'll reduce it to just what you have and the resources you have. But if you magnify the Lord and what he said that you can do, then you'll do great things. You'll do greater things than you've ever imagined because your attention is not on you and your limits. Your attention will be on him and his limitlessness. And you'll do great things. Verse 5 says this, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Mark 5, 14 and 16 says, you're the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. See, as we behold him, we are radiant as he is. I love this word radiant. Here's what it means in the Hebrew. It means to sparkle to be cheerful, and to flow like a running stream. I like that. It means to sparkle. I'm just going to step out there. How cool would it be if... As those who know the Lord set their gaze on him, and they magnify him in their life every day that they just begin to sparkle. You know, that's a reality. You can see it from the word when Moses came down, his face shone. I mean, I've heard testimonies. I've had people say that. They've seen that of people who just shine, who just glow. And you know what? It might not it not even have to be this circle around your head. It can just be that when they look in your eyes, they see there's life and it's different than what everybody else in the world has. That you sparkle. That when you look when they look in your eyes, they don't go, "Oh, don't look at them." Why? Because they they like they, they look like they want to say something that's probably not going to be good, so just don't look at them. You ever done that? You ever seen somebody and you just look in their eyes like this? And you look at them and you go, I don't want to see them. I don't want to make eye contact with them. I don't want to make eye contact. And then they go, hey. (laughs) And you go, what? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. 
but the people that you work with. I'm telling you, guys, this is not a fairy tale. This is a reality that, that he said here, those who look to him, those who magnify him, they're radiant. I don't believe Christians ought to have to go around knock on doors. I don't believe, I'm not saying that's wrong, okay? Don't take something out and tell it to somebody that I said without in context. I'm saying this. I think you ought to be the door that people look at and they go, man, there's something. You can be in your workplace. You can be a boss. You can be a servant. You can be the lady that cleans the house. But as you magnify the Lord, as a matter of fact, I got a testimony. I t- met with someone yesterday. They came to our house and met with Tina and I, and uh, we spent quite a bit of time with them. But as they were leaving, they said they wanted to share a testimony. They said they had gone to this place, and they said they were just really under a lot, had been experiencing a lot, and were kind of heavy. And they said they were, uh, they were actually at a, is it a flea market? Is that what it is? They had a flea market, and uh, the husband went way, one way, and the wife went the other way, and she was walking up through there, and she was just like, all the doors were locked, and she said, I came to this one door, and she said there were three people in there. She said there was a man and a woman, African-American, and they were talking like this, and said they weren't talking, they were just sharing scripture back and forth, and she said, you could feel the presence of the Lord. She said there was a guy just to the side, he was walking back and forth like this, and he was just praying in the spirit. He, she said he was just walking back and forth, and she walked up to the door, and he said, the presence of the Lord is in here, and he just went back and kept, kept walking like this, and he was praying. He said, I got to go back to work, and he walked out, and she was just standing there, and these, this woman and this man were just going back and forth, magnifying the Lord magnifying the Lord, and, and the other gentleman left, and the woman was there, and she walked in, and she talked to him. She said, uh, she said, wow, that was something. She said, I just love the Lord. You have to understand. I'm not sure where she was from, but she said, my husband is Muslim, and she said, I met Jesus Christ. Uh, how many years ago? I can't remember exactly, a few years ago. But she had scripture up in the wall. She said, and the Lord told me to come to this place and open a shop. And so when I come here, what I do is I spend all day with Jesus. I read the word and I spend time with him. And I know that there's opportunity here for me. I can't read the Bible in my house, but I can read it here. And she had worship music going and they were, and she was worshiping the Lord. You know what she was doing? She was letting her light so shine that it drew this person we know, drew them into the shop. And this woman was having a rough day. And when she walked in, she said immediately the presence of the Lord was so thick it broke off. You know why? Because he had been magnified there. And she was sparkling. She was cheerful. I'm going to tell you, some of you, if you just got cheerful, you, you people you work with, they go, what the world is wrong? <laughs> is it something you're smoking, <laughs> taking, drinking? What is it? <laughs> some, some would really be shocked if cheerful just took over you. You know, we were praying before we came in here, and, and uh, Joyce and Rochelle and, and um, Tisha were praying. They were just praying there'd be a release of the joy of the Lord. And I'm telling you, it's growing, and as it does, I like it, but it's scary to, to religion because it seems irreverent. It's holy to cry in church. It's irreverent to laugh in church. Prove that. 
It didn't say the cry of the Lord is my strength. It says the joy of the Lord is my strength. As a matter of fact, listen to this. I shared this with them. I'll just share it with you since I have the mic right now. <laughs> this, this is Proverbs chapter 8 in the complete Jewish Bible. It's, this is wisdom speaking. Verse 27 of Proverbs chapter 8 says, When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew the horizons circle of, on the deep, and when he set the skies above in place and the fountains of the deep pour forth, when he prescribed boundaries for the sea so that its water would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, verse 30 says, I was with him as someone he could trust. For me, every day was pure delight as I played in his presence all the time. As I played in his presence all the time. That's wisdom speaking. Some scholars say that wisdom and Jesus are the same. I say Jesus is wisdom for sure. Verse 31. Playing everywhere on his earth and delighting to be with humankind. What? Are you serious? God delights to be with us so much that he let his son die. So that he could have back the relationship that had been sacrificed. Playing everywhere on his earth and delighting to be with humankind. Therefore, children, listen to me. Happy are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and grow wise and do not refuse it. How happy the person. He didn't say how somber. This is wisdom speaking. How happy the person who listens to me, who watches daily at my gates and waits outside my doors. For he who finds me finds life and obtains favor of Adonai. Favor of the Lord. How does wisdom react? How does wisdom respond in the presence of the Lord? He's happy. He's playing all over his earth. You know what it looks like to me? It looks like a child. When we were uh, preparing for the worship outside uh, a few weeks ago, Tish uh, brought the boys, and and Dawn came and brought the girls, and they just all happened to have bow and arrows. I don't know <laughs> what that was, but they all had bow and arrows, and we were just shooting arrows. I was joining in. I was, can I shoot the arrow? Yeah, man, they stick. I went up. I was sticking them up on the depot. Everything, you know what? We was playing. We were having a good time. People would have not there. It, there are intercessory prayers going on there. Shh. Uh, shh. Is there a time to be quiet before the Lord? Absolutely. He said, be still and know that I am God. But what's happened is we've seen one thing work and we try to make a formula out of it. Instead of knowing the ways of God, we know an act of God. And he said, I want my children understand who I am so they can operate with me because they sh as they magnify me they will be radiant they'll glow they'll be a river that flows oh, oh that's so good it all ties into the New Testament that one word the definition of the word radiant I can take you to John's gospel and every one of those definitions John gives us 
of who the New Testament believers look like, look, is to look like. Amen. Moving right along. He said this in verse 9. This is something I've been, I've been, I've been uh, really praying over for some time and just really uh, seeking the wisdom of the Lord because I don't want it to be taken out of context and I don't want it to be uh, misquoted uh, just by itself. And it's, I've been really pressing into the fear of the Lord because he says perfect love casts out fear. And then, uh, but it also talks about, and one of the best things that John said it before is there's the, the fear of the Lord, not the afraid of the Lord. There's a huge difference in the fear of the Lord and the afraid of the Lord. And, you know, I've heard speakers that I respect very much say, you know, uh, talk about the fear of the Lord and that there is a terror involved in it. And I've just really been before the Lord and I said, all right, Lord, I want to understand this because your word says that your love, your perfect love, casts out fear. And because fear involves torment. So when you, if I have been made righteous, when you come in the room, there should be reverence and respect, but I shouldn't be afraid of you. Are you with me? I shouldn't be afraid of him if I'm really in Christ. If I really believe that, not just so I can stand tall and all that and confess my in him scriptures. But if I really believe that, there shouldn't be a fear. So I, I, I pressed into that. And one of the things is in Luke chapter 4, verse 5 and 8, uh, 5 through 8. This is Jesus, and he's, he's dealing um, with Satan. All right? 5 says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, Tell to you I will give all of this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. It has been delivered to me. How was it delivered to Satan? Did Satan take it? Here's something some people need to know. You'll get a breakthrough here today. Satan is not an all-powerful being that was set on earth to torment believers. Satan was a fallen angel stripped of his power that, that now operates in the authority of the sons of men that was given to him from Adam. Jesus came and redeemed that, and that authority has been given to us. So the authority that Satan has in the earth today is when, when you make agreement with him. So he said, it was given to me. It was delivered to me, and I will give it to who I will. See, here's the thing. This is verse 6, verse 7. He says, if you then worship me, it will all be yours. Would it have been a temptation if it was a lie? No. So what he was saying is, if you'll worship me, I'll give you authority right now. Because it was given to me. I have the ability to give it to you. And you can have authority. But what was, what was Satan at? What caused Satan to fall? He wanted worship. He wanted to exalt his throne, throne above God's. And he said, if you'll worship me, I'll give you the authority. It's not the authority I'm after. It's worship. Can I tell you something? The same is true in your life. He's not after your power. He's not after your health. He wants you to worship him. 
then the Bible says, to whom you yield yourself servant is whom servant you are. That's New Testament. It's who you worship. It's quiet up in this Methodist church. Verse 7, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Verse 8, Jesus answered, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now this is Jesus quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. But Jesus interprets a word. He doesn't change it. He interprets it. And what the word that he interprets is fear. Because in Deuteronomy 6.13 it says, You'll fear the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. So Jesus said, I just want to interpret what that word really means. It means worship. If you worship the Lord. So the fear of the Lord isn't just a reverence. Oh, he's God. It's a worship. Now here's what worship is. I've been waiting for two weeks to get here. This all been introduction. I'm just kidding. It's the Greek word proskuneo, and it means this. It means to kiss. All right. Take your fence hat off and sit it beside you because this might get you. Which literally means like a dog licking his master's hand. It means to fawn, to crouch, to prostrate oneself in homage, to do reverence, to adore. I'm telling you, what the Lord desires from his children is not that we all shake and tremble in trepidation when he walks in, but that we adore him. That we reverence him above any other thing to the place. What's precious to me is I have a dog that loves me very much. She is the best dog in the world. If you have a dog, I'm sorry, don't be offended. It's just a fact. (coughs) It's not up for discussion. And when we come in and we love on her, she, she lights up. When the garage door opens, she's right there at the door. Tail wagging. She lights up, and she wants to be there, and she wants to lick. We don't let her lick people in the face. It's not biblical. (laughs) Worship is to lick the hand. (laughs) Shava. (laughs) Some of your faces are priceless. Oh, Lord. I love what I do. Mm. To fawn, to crouch. You know what it means? It is, it is to just be utterly undone because their presence is there. And the Lord spoke this to my heart. He said... What you worship is what releases life into you. Who you worship. And let me say it this way. What you worship either releases life or death in you. 
So he's saying, <clears throat> what my heart for you is that when he said here, those who fear the Lord, those who adore, those who crouch, it's not because the sin, because that's been paid for. It's because of the reverence, the love, the respect, the awe of who he is. And what it does, again, my dog, when she comes, she doesn't lick my hand because she's afraid of me. She licks my hand because she loves me and she's happy I'm there. Come on. That's the heart of the Lord. I sh I've shared this before. And I'll share it. And uh, wow. We might close. I said might. Uh, Andrew Womack was talking about a dog that he got for his uh, he got for his mother, <clears throat> and he said the dog had been abused. It was after his dad had passed, and said it was I don't remember what breed of dog it was, but it was a big dog that he'd got for for an attack dog. But him being the authority figure more than the mother, he said anytime I would come in the yard, he said that dog would just put his head down like this and just crawl to me. He said anybody looking would just think I beat the dog. And he said, I rescued the dog. I brought it to my mom's house where it could be loved. And he said, all I would want to do is rub it. And he said, I'm sitting on the front porch, and I call a dog. And the dog can be running around the yard, his tail wagging. I call his name, his head goes down like this, and he starts scrubbing on his belly and sliding up to him. He said, he said, that's so ridiculous. He said, I wish for once that dog wouldn't misrepresent me in front of all the neighbors. And when I call his name, he thinks that I'm just going to beat him. And he said, the Lord spoke to his heart, and he said, I wish the same thing. I wish the same thing, that when people say my name, they don't crouch and go, he's just waiting to squish me like a bug. He, see, here's the thing with grace. Grace doesn't excuse sin. Grace is a person. John says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Sin is not overlooked because of grace. Sin was paid for because of grace. Grace does not excuse sin. Grace says all penalty and punishment for sin was placed on Jesus. He bore sin for me. It doesn't overlook it. It says it was paid for. So every time we declare grace, we're not saying just live like you want to. What we're saying is there was a time when Jesus paid the price for me. It doesn't overlook, it's not greasy. It doesn't say live any kind of lifestyle you want to live outside of the word. If the word says it's a sin, it's a sin. I'm not one to label sins. I don't, I don't care if it's adultery, homosexuality. I don't care if it's uh, abuse. I don't care what it is. If it's sin and it's, it hurts the heart of God, grace doesn't say it's okay. Grace frees you from the power of it, of it, over it. So grace is not grace that slides you through. Grace is a payment. His name is Jesus Christ. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And it's His love that was poured out because of that grace that He doesn't condemn those caught in sin. He said, there's, there's freedom if you come to the cross. There's deliverance if you come to the cross. That's the love of Jesus. I want to share this. I was going to just pass by, but I want to share this. I told you I wanted to get the children of Israel into the promised land, all right? They've been in the wilderness for so long. Here in this house, they were in it for 40 years, right? They've got to get there, okay? I've got to get them there for you. <clears throat> so I, 
continued to pray about that, and I continued to look at that. And I went to Joshua. I won't read all of this. You, you need to read the first few chapters of Joshua. But for sake of time, I won't. Uh, but in Joshua chapter 1, verse 2, he said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, rise over the, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am given to them, uh, to the children of Israel. Joshua, uh, verse 10, says this of chapter 1. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Listen, prepare provisions for yourself for within three days we will cross over this jordan to go to the to the land which the lord is giving us to possess he said in three days right three days okay there's a little break here in joshua chapter two they go in there's two spies i shared this the other week joshua got smart moses chose 10 I chose 12, 10 gave a bad report, 2 gave a good. Joshua said, I'm going with 2. My odds are a lot better with 2 than with 10. That's okay. So Joshua sent 2 in. The 2 went in, they were spying out the land, and they found out they were there. And Rahab, the harlot, saved them. Uh, You just want to talk about grace. She was a harlot. If you want an explanation of that later, you come up to me, I'll help you. When they came to ask her, she lied. No, they came, but they went. You better go catch. If you go now, you'll catch them. That's what she said. And then here's what's so cool. She's talking to the two spies, and they, she said, Will you save, save me since I've saved you? And they gave her some things. They said, If you'll tie this scarlet on, uh, th- rope thread on the window when we come. Here's what's so cool. Listen. Man, this is how much, this is where I said imagination. This is where God wants us to grow. Because just reading this story, the Lord just excited me. In case you didn't know, I needed to tell you that. The spy, they didn't go in with a formula saying, we're going to get caught. This harlot is going to help us. And when she does, here's what we're going to do. They went in to do what Joshua told them. They knew that they were on assignment from the Lord. So in the midst of it, they said, she helped them. And they said, if you'll tie this on the... On the wall. What were they doing? They were acting in the authority that had been given to them. Oh, man, somebody get that. I about spit on you. <laughs> they said, tie it on the... Joshua said, he went through the camp before he sent them in. He said, y'all get ready. In three days, we're going in. They go in. This is just how good the Lord is. I'm about to get excited. They go in, this, they talk to her, there's dialogue, this is in chapter 2. They talk, and she says, all right, now here's what you do. And, and they said, if you don't do everything like we told you, we're not responsible. They, so what they did is they went, and I'm getting ahead of myself. So she said, here's what you do. <laughs> she said, you go, I'm going to let you down tonight, and you go wait for three days. Then go back to the camp. And they'll be done looking for you. So Joshua declared in three days, we're going in. Rahab wasn't there when Joshua declared that. But while they were in there conversing, one of the things that Rahab said is, we heard when y'all crossed the Red Sea, and we were, we were scared then. And how God had delivered, um, I forget what item it was, to you. And we were scared then. Pretty much she was saying, where you been? Forty years have gone. We've been scared looking over the wall for 40 years. 
And she said, but if you'll go, I'm going to let you down. You go and hide in the woods for three days, and then they'll be done looking for you, and then you'll be free. So they get back the day they're to go take the promised land. Joshua declared three days. Rahab the harlot said three days. Jesus was in the tomb. I'm just getting started. So they go back. They come in. They march around. And the walls fall and Rahab is delivered. But before they come in, here's what happened. Joshua. Chapter 3. Verse 5. And Joshua said to the people, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. (laughs) He said, set yourselves apart, because tomorrow you're going to see wonders. Then Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, take up the ark of the covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, this day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know as I was with Moses, I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear, come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you will know that the living God is among you. And he, he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Gergesites, and the Jebusites. Verse 11. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of uh, all the earth is crossing over before you in the Jordan, into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes, one from every tribe, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord... Uh, of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. The waters shall come down from upstream, and they shall stand as a heap. Verse 14. I'm reading fast. So it was when the people set out from the camp to cross over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the Lord, and as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped into the edge of the water, the Jordan overflows all its banks during this whole time of harvest. So the Jordan River itself is probably about 8 or 10 feet wide. <clears throat> in like right, I don't know what time it is. Though. When I was there in January, it was about 8 or 10 feet wide. We, marked, we, walked o- we rode over it on a bridge, and the guy kind of mocked, there's the mighty Jordan. But <clears throat> the water, here's, it's not, listen, it's not how wide or how deep the Jordan was. It's what happened when the priests touched the edge of the water that were overflowing. Now, I can understand that a little bit because behind my house, there's a creek about six foot wide, five to six foot wide. But when it storms, it overflows, and it's almost 40 foot wide. I've got pictures to prove it. It goes from six to 30 in a hurry. So I don't know how wide this was, but that's, I don't even care. I don't care if it wasn't but 10 foot wide. Here's what's awesome. <coughs> and it, the waters... Verse 16, the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam. The water stood in a heap. Scholars say from where it was to where Adam was is 15 miles. The water was overflowing. 
So I don't know if it means the water stood up high from there all the way to Adam or if it was 15 miles high and it was dry the rest of the way down. But here's what's amazing. What went in? The Ark of the Covenant. You know what the Ark is? It's simply a type of Jesus Christ. And what was rolled back? The waters from the Ark to Adam. So what happened? God said, I'm taking everything back from Jesus to Adam. And in order to do that, it's so you can go into the promised land. Listen, I'm not going to read it all because of time. If you read this, it'll say they told them when they were going in, it says stay 2,000 cubits behind the ark. When the ark goes in, you'll cross over on dry land. There's several things that just my imagination just exploded as I read this. One is there, scholars say it was between one to three million people. I know that they got whittled down a whole lot because the older ones died, but they, the younger ones had new young ones. You understand when they so, say a million people. The priests, four of them, walked in, and when their toes touched the water, it rolled back. The land dried all the way to the Dead Sea. So he said, when you come to Jesus... I'm taking back everything to Adam. And all your sins are going to the Dead Sea. And it stood in a heap. And they stood there, those priests, holding that box, that gold box. And you know what was in that box? There was three things inside of it. There was the golden pot of manna. There was the Ten Commandments, and there was Aaron's Aaron's rod that budded. The golden pot of manna, it represented man's rebellion against God's provision. They complained. The stone represented man's rebellion against God's (coughs) commandments, against his his standard. And then the rod represented his rebellion against God's authority. So in there, their rebellion was inside the ark, under the mercy seat, was symbols of their rebellion of provision, of a standard, and of authority. And God said, put it under the mercy seat and cover it with the blood. Romans 3 says this. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. This is a different word than what I read earlier about propitiation. God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That word propitiation is the Greek word helasterion. And it means this. Mercy seat. It literally means mercy seat. When it says Christ is our propitiation, he says Christ is our mercy seat. He is the high priest and he is the mercy seat. That's why he had to be nailed to the tree. He was nailed. Listen, I, I, I won't for Oh. John chapter 20. Next week we'll just do worship and go home, okay? No, nah, maybe not. <laughs> John chapter 20, there's the mercy seat, right? Jesus is the mercy seat. He stepped in the water. The water stood in a heap all the way to Adam. 
That just excites the mess out of me. And then it dried up the rest of the way down, and the children of Israel were able to cross on dry ground. Where there was no condemnation, there was no consciousness of sin of the past. It all washed into the Dead Sea, and it didn't come out. And then it says, Jesus is our mercy seat. Now, what was the mercy seat? The mercy seat, I wish I would have prompted Eddie to bring it. This, Eddie has a lifelike ark. And uh, <clears throat> in his room, and there's been pastors who tried to bribe him out of it. But he's got a life. Eddie is a, uh, a master carpenter, cabinet maker. He's the man. He made these beautiful things, boxes here, and the tables but he's got this ark, and if you look at the ark, the mercy seat are two angels over. They face each other over the mercy seat. And when the high priest would go in, he would sprinkle blood, and it would each year, and it would be the atonement. It would be payment for the sins. John chapter 20. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciples whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Verse 3, Peter therefore went out and the other disciples and, and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran, Pete, outran Peter. You know, the other disciple, he's the one whom Jesus loved. You know who that is? That's John, the writer of the book. <clears throat> he said, I just need to let you know I outran Peter. Peter started, but I beat him. <laughs> he came to the tomb, and he, and he, stooping down, verse 5, listen, and he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in the place. In a place by itself, you know, Jewish tradition says that when there was the feast of the Passover, if the master, if the father of the house got up, if he was coming back, <laughs> he wouldn't throw his napkin on the plate. He would fold it and set it in its place. That meant I'm coming back. see what verse I'm supposed to be on. Eight. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as they did not, <coughs> for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead, even though he told them he would. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now, verse 11 says, But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. You know who this Mary is? According to Fawcett's dictionary, Bible dictionary, this Mary is the one that whom he cast out seven demons. This Mary is the one that came in the Pharisee's house and she broke this vial of precious ointment and she poured it out on Jesus. And they said, don't you know what manner of woman this is? And Jesus said, leave her, leave her alone. She is worshiping. What was she doing? You know what she was doing? She was licking his hand. She didn't come in and say, I'm scared of you. She came in and poured her everything out for him. And she didn't care who saw it or what they said. 
I'm going to tell you what, that much more pleased the Lord than you just shake when he comes around. Those references are Luke 7, 37 and 38 and Luke 8, 3. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. As she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. You know what she saw? The mercy seat. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had laid. She saw the mercy seat. There was an angel at the head and an angel at the foot. Who saw it? It wasn't Peter and John. It was the one who had poured her worship out and said, I don't care what anybody else says. He's worthy. And he's worthy of my everything. They can talk about me till I die. They can kill me. It doesn't matter. Because he's worthy of it all. It wasn't a cute song that she sang. It was a life that she led, that she poured out. And everyone went away. And she stayed and looked in. And God said, I want you to see something no one else will see. She stayed after she saw it. And someone spoke to her. And she supposed it was the gardener. And then Jesus looked at her. And he said, Mary. And she She fell and she worshipped him. Before he did that, he looked at her and he said, Worship Mary, why are you weeping? Then he revealed himself to her, to who? The one who had worshipped him with everything that she had. People say, I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. You know how you see Jesus? You worship him. You magnify him. You set your gaze on him above everything else. And he will, John 14, 21 says, he will manifest. That word means make visible, make seen, make known himself to you. Why is that important? Listen to this. I'll close, I promise. He told the priest, and this is tautology, some. Told the priest, stay back 2,000 years, 2,000 cubits behind the ark. And then after the ark goes in and the waters go back to Adam, then you're going to cross over into the promised land. It was this river that separated. You're going to cross over into the promised land. It wasn't right then that they took occupancy of Jericho, but they crossed over what had divided them. And they were then in the promised land. And he said, you're going into the promised land when you cross over. And I believe. Romans says that the earth itself is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. I believe that we're in a season right now. We've been walking 2,000 cubits behind. But the ark's come. He stood in the gap. He made up the hedge. And the waters have gone back to Adam. He said, I've bought back everything that was lost and I've given it to you and here we stand in this day 2000 years later after the mercy seat came and paid the price and he's saying it's time for the sons and daughters of God to arise and take the promised land the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven that he would get his full reward that we would lose sight of our excuses and set our gaze on him because he's worthy. Let's stand.
So here's my challenge, my encouragement to you. Let's see, I get a tissue. Is it let's see Jesus and let's understand that he's taking care of it. And he's desiring for us to occupy. You hear me? It's time that we, the children, stand up, that we're radiant. And I'm taken back, I believe it was Tommy Cook is who had the prophecy, had the vision. And I've shared this before, but it was years ago. I, Rochelle, do you remember, was it in the 60s or, or 70s when he had, was it Tommy? It wasn't Cook, what was it? Anyway, he saw, he had a vision and... Uh, there was a giant laying on the ground, and it was covered in darkness. And um, he said that, I can't remember how it started. But anyway, the giant began to stand up. And as the giant began to stand up, these, this darkness fell off. And it, you could see that it was oppression. It was the, the filth of the world. And the giant was the church. And he said, as the giant stood up, his head went into the clouds. And when it did, he just lit up. And his hands went out. And he said that it, out of his fingertips... And this, the giant was the church, said out of the fingertips went rays of light, and it hit people, and they became rays of light. And everywhere they went, they carried the light, and the glory of the Lord circled the earth. He said there were those who didn't want it and who would, who would uh, draw back into the shadows, but everyone that received it became a light. And all over the world, the world was transformed not by a huge movement in the church, but by the body of Christ standing up. And that's my heart is that we as a body right here stand up. We've got a practical way, practical ways that we're doing that. And you'll hear more about that coming up. But, but the way it starts is just like Mary did, is recognizing who he is and saying, I want you to be my everything. Peter and John went in, but all they saw was the stuff laying. But as Mary looked in, she saw the mercy seat. And when she stood up, he was standing with her. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty amazing. So I want you to do something. I want you to bow your heads. And uh, it, I got a couple of things I want to ask you. One, if you're here and you say, I don't know that I have relationship with Jesus. I don't know for sure that I have relationship with Jesus. But I want to know. I don't want religion. I don't want uh, anything other than a life that says, Jesus, I know you and you know me. We saw last week that he gave us the, the understanding of how to enter into that. He said that you repent, which means to turn from sin, and you believe in him. That means confessing the Savior and Lord. So if you're here today and you say, I've never done that, but I want to do it today. I don't want to leave without knowing that I have a relationship with Jesus. If that's you, would you raise your hand and say, pray for me. Don't be embarrassed. It, thank you. The people here, they love you and they want to help you. Anyone else? All right. The other is you say, I believe that I have relationship with the Lord. But just being honest, I've been 
maybe not living selfishly or pridefully, but my attention hasn't been set on him, and I want it to be. I want it to be set on him. I want to set my eyes on the hills from whence come my help. My help comes from the Lord. If that's you and you say, look, I want today to be a new day with new direction. Like the psalmist said, I will say of the Lord. He is my refuge and my strength. If that's you, would you raise your hand and say, I just want you to pray for me. That I, today is a day that I'm making that declaration that he is Lord of all.